Hello everyone, Benny Mathers here, producer for Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Just want to let everybody know the following show is an encore presentation that was recorded back on May 19th, as we realized this pandemic is more than we thought. And good day, ladies and gentlemen. I'm the producer of Benny Mathers of Voices of Experience with Paul Casey, and it has happened. Paul has returned to the Pacific Northwest. I couldn't be more happier. Ticker tape parade and all. Paul, hello, and welcome back. Thank you, Benny, and thank you for arranging for that parade. I am extremely touched. My wife and my two doggies could not be more pleased. We really felt very welcome coming back to the Pacific Northwest. Oh, you're welcome. It was it was my honor from six to 10 feet away. Right, and you did that, and I was very <laughs> impressed. And uh, I'll tell you, coming in on Friday morning, mm-hmm. we'd only been gone four months, but it seemed like forever in some ways. And the reason I say that is the Pacific Northwest, flying over Seattle, the green, the beauty of this place is unmatched. And you realize that when you come back and you're away from it for a while. Exactly. So it's great to be back. So uh, today, uh, I want to talk to you and the audience about, um, first of all, an interview with Dr. John Tom Kowiak, and he is the founding dean of the WSU Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine at Washington State University in Spokane, and the real mission of the new medical college, it just opened up in 2017, is to serve the rural parts of the state of Washington, both Eastern and Western Washington. And also what makes it unique is that they recruit future doctors heavily from this state. You have a really leg up if you're a resident of this state or you have deep ties to the state of Washington. So that's coming up in just a few moments. Uh, I also had an interview, as you know, if you've been listening to the show for the last couple of weeks with former Secretary of State, Sam Sumner-Reed. I call it a trilogy of my interviews with him. And we talked a couple of weeks ago about vote by mail. We were one of the first states to have vote by mail for the entire state. And the good news is that there's never been any fraud. You may hear otherwise, but in this state, and Sam's talked about other states, there's never been a real case of fraud. We talked about the top two primary system last week. And uh, this week, we're going to talk about the closest governor's race not only in the state of Washington's history when Sam was Secretary of State, but the closest in the history of the United States. And that was between Dino Rossi and Christine Gregoire in 2004. So let's get to my interview with the founding dean of the WSU Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine in just a moment. Are you thinking about self-employment? Visit Amazon or order a book called Pre-Flight Checklist. Is self-employment for you? Pre-Flight addresses eight myths surrounding self-employment and includes a self-employment quiz. The higher you score, the higher your prospects for success. Visit Amazon Books and input Pre-Flight Checklist. That's Pre-Flight Checklist. Welcome back to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. Now, the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine was established in Spokane as part of Washington State University. It was founded in 2015 and was named after the late Elson S. Floyd, president of Washington State from 2007 until his untimely death 
in June of 2015. In August of 2017, the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine welcomed its first inaugural class of 60 students. Its major function is to serve the rural areas of Washington and to recruit students primarily from the state of Washington or who have close ties to the state of Washington. A short time ago, I had the opportunity to visit with Dr. John Tom Kowiak, who was the founding dean of the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine. Dr. John Tom Kowiak came to WSU from the Chicago Medical School, where he served as dean, acting chair of the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Health, and professor of psychiatry. My first question is, why do we need a second medical college in the state of Washington? You know, Elson S. Floyd talked about building a medical school that was bold, audacious, and visionary. One of the things that you realize when you look at uh, the needs of rural and underserved communities, they need clinicians who understand their issues. So part of our innovation for building out the college was what are those skills and characteristics of future healthcare providers that are going to best meet the needs of people in rural and underserved areas. When you look at the current data of why physicians oftentimes leave those areas, it's because they don't feel confident in their own skills on their own because frequently they are the only provider in uh, the area. They don't have the cadre of consultants and other folks uh, readily at hand to uh, consult and refer to. So that's one issue. And the second issue is oftentimes there's a feeling of isolation. They don't feel connected. And uh, you know that's a very difficult environment to um, practice medicine in. Part of the answer for us was to give them leadership skills. So we are currently the only medical school in the country that offers a certificate in leadership as a part of their regular medical school experience. And we cover issues to uh, help them uh, build their resilience, to uh, build understanding of some of the special issues that uh, rural and underserved communities face. The second real fundamental piece is that you need to have learners really be embedded in those communities to understand the issues. And so instead of just having them do a rotation, you know, for four weeks or six weeks, they literally move to those communities for the last two years of their training and um, become embedded. If you look at most medical schools around the country, 70% of the training involves inpatient training. And of course, there's a lot of valuable uh, lessons to be learned when patients are in the hospital and at their sickest but 90% uh, of care is delivered outpatient and students actually get very little training in that environment. And to be a great clinician in an outpatient setting uh, really requires uh, what we call is a lot of touches, a lot of patient touches where you're you know, getting the, the reps of seeing patients over and over with maybe similar symptoms, but variations and nuances. And uh, our students are getting that. And one of the interesting things we've done is engaged in something called a longitudinal clerkship model, which uh, sets them up with a primary uh, preceptor. And it's more like an apprenticeship model 
where they see um, that same clinician for nine months over the year. And then we give them a panel of patients that they follow no matter what problem uh, the patient has. So if a patient comes in first to their primary care doctor and says, oh, they have some abdominal pain, and then it's determined that they need to go see a surgeon, well, our student actually follows the patient to that next surgery visit and goes with the patient um, uh, to that visit. And then if the patient needs surgery, well, our student will be scrubbing in on that surgery as well, and then they'll be right there for follow-up care. I call it like BC, before corona, and now AC, after corona. We're not after yet. But how that is really already ramping up more than we ever thought. So having that in kind of the goals that you were setting, there's a lot of foresight there, and I imagine it's probably needed more today than you ever thought. Absolutely. You know, before uh, coronavirus occurred, uh, the Kaiser Permanente system uh, along the West Coast was reporting that over 50% of their primary care visits in their system was done over telehealth, and that was before coronavirus. Um, of course, um, that those numbers uh, have to be significantly higher. I haven't seen recent numbers, but most uh, larger healthcare clinics and systems have uh, really ramped up their telehealth presence uh, over the last two months. It, um, the important thing to understand about telehealth is it's not the same as an inpatient visit. We all know that. And there are actually different skills that good telehealth practitioners learn so they can better take care of patients over a telehealth environment. What do you think, as far as the role of Washington State, any major shifts in your thinking that was before Corona and after Corona, let's say the role in the mission, or is it pretty much all the same? For us, it's pretty much all the same. Our mission has always been centered around um, helping to provide solutions for the challenging healthcare environments in and around the state. And uh, so, you know, the coronavirus fits right in with that mission. And let's shift to drones for a moment. I mean, this again is something that you're starting to see more and more being used. I mean, it's not something in the future. First of all, where do you think drones will be used? And then where are we at in terms of making that a reality? I think a crisis like today um, gives us an opportunity to um, maybe uh, utilize drones uh, more and sort of um, not only provide sort of a, a testing grounds for what it works for and what it doesn't, but it also maybe introduces the idea to the public that uh, there might be ways, uh, innovative ways, in which we can bring healthcare to you. You know, that's really the underlying theme that um, I have felt and that we have been working toward is this idea of bringing healthcare to wherever you are. And that could be uh, at your home or your office. It could be in your car on the side of a road. Let's say I was driving to Pullman and I was uh, between Vantage and Ellensburg or something like that and something occurred, heart attack or uh, anything, a mild stroke or whatever. How long would it take to get a drone from, let's say, a base to, say, Vantage, Washington? It could be a matter of 10 to 15 minutes, depending on where the drone station is. There's a whole cadre now of sensors and other kinds of um, sort of uh, wherever you are tools that we can deploy 
where we can remotely help you uh, give us more information about your condition and then potentially suggest treatments that you can apply uh, right there uh, on the spot. I don't know uh, scientifically how much you're embedded with the coronavirus, but are you optimistic we'll eventually get a handle on this? Yes, uh, we not only have uh, healthcare, uh, the sort of traditional healthcare working uh, on solutions, but we've got a lot of you know new sort of tech companies who are getting involved in bringing sort of uh, their frameworks and firepower, uh, sometimes computing power, uh, two solutions as well. So I think we live in an age where um, we have even companies outside of traditional healthcare companies who now uh, appreciate that they can bring value to solutions in the healthcare arena. And I do think though that um, because this virus has uh, found a way to uh, mutate fairly rapidly and you know we do know that different strains have developed some of them uh, seem to be uh, have more uh, morbidity and mortality associated with other strains I, I do think it will be a complicated solution to bringing uh, this virus under control and you know as um, you've probably been reading uh, recently in the last week or two it will probably mean the development of maybe multiple vaccines targeted against uh, different um, variations of the virus and uh, even maybe different remedies uh, to help treat the virus. All of that said though, I think um, this is a, an important wake-up call for not only healthcare but for everyone else that the importance of devoting sort of time and energy to not only uh, fundamental research, but also applied research in the area of healthcare. If I'm a student out there, high school, or maybe in junior college or college, and you've inspired me to want to go to college at Washington State University, the medical college, what would you suggest I do? One, obviously you have to have sort of a good grounding in uh, reasoning and you know how you approach learning new information so you know you don't have to get straight A's to be a doctor um, but what you have to do is you have to demonstrate you have a passion for knowledge and a good ability to track knowledge down incorporate it and so I would really encourage uh, students as they're going through sort of community college or college it's not about the grade you're getting it's really about the skill of learning how to reason um, because that's the essence of a doctor so that's number one number two um, for washington state we really focus on people who want to bring solutions to local communities so getting involved in your local community it doesn't have to be healthcare involvement but showing that you have an interest in people or the area or region uh, where you live uh, that's really important to us, so I would get involved. And third is we do want you to have some experience in healthcare and particularly working with uh, physicians because uh, it is a difficult and challenging journey. And if you don't have a sense of what it might involve, you know, when you reach the end of your goal, you know, what does a physician actually do every day? It, it's a long journey to take and then discover at the end you don't really like what a doctor does. Anything else before we go? Well, I would just like to say thank you, uh, Paul, for giving me the opportunity to talk a little bit about um, the Elson Public College of Medicine and sort of uh, how our team is approaching um, 
you know, things. And here's the, the last point I would like to say is because of social distancing and uh, trying to keep people safe, uh, we've had to change our approach to education to include a lot more uh, virtual elements, you know, uh, learning um, at a distance, or we like to call it learning in place. And uh, I think that has been a, a difficult uh, transition, not only for some of our students, but for some of our faculty. And what I would say is it's uh, also provided some really interesting insights and opportunities to think about, you know, how can we maybe bring um, medical school to maybe even more uh, students or applicants who maybe because of access, the inability to, to maybe afford to move to the place where the medical school is, or, um, you know, they need to stay at home to help take care of family. Uh, is there a path to developing a model so people literally could learn in the communities they live, live in uh, how to be a doctor and begin their, you know, their training right there at home? You know, we don't know what direction this will take us, but uh, I do want to say we feel we are living out the spirit of Elson S. Floyd and continuing to think about being bold, audacious, and visionary as we move forward trying to train a, an amazing workforce for the state of Washington. Well, my thanks to Dr. John Tom Kowiak for his comments about the Elson S. Floyd College of Medicine. It won't be too long before they welcome their first graduating class. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. This is the third part of my series of interviews with Sam Reed, the former Secretary of State of Washington State, between the years 2001 and 2013. He had an incredible run. And I think I mentioned at the beginning, he was one of the first individuals to introduce vote by mail in the state. We were the second state to do it nationally. He went to the Supreme Court and argued for the top two primary along with Rob McKenna, was successful there. And then he came in 2004, he was just reelected. And on that day, the closest governor's race in the history of the country took place between Dino Rossi and Christine Gregoire. My first question to Sam was, were you mentally prepared to take this on? Fortunately, as a local official, I had done a number of recounts, including two congressional recounts and, uh, and a couple legislative and local. So, you know, I, I felt, well, all right, we can handle this and immediately put it together. Uh, but then what happened was, is we did the first recount, which is done by machines here in the state of Washington. So you literally run the ballots through again. Uh, and usually you have some changes and all that. And I expected that would probably spread it out a little bit more. Uh, but in fact, I remember sitting, I was at lunch, uh, a lunch meeting and uh, received a call, picked up the phone and they said, uh, after the recount, the, the difference was something like 26 votes or something. I mean, it was just absurd. 
And uh, at that point, I really then uh, got very concerned because in essence, what it was really was a tie. It, it, it was just kind of mind blowing. The Democratic candidate, Attorney General Chris Gregoire, had the option under Washington state law to request a hand recount because she was still behind. The uh, Republican state Senator Dino Rossi was ahead both in the first count and in the machine count. Uh, she could request it, but they would have to put the money up to pay for it. And if it, the results did not change, then they paid for it. If the results changed, we would reimburse. And, uh, and it was quite a bit of money, something like 750000 or something. Uh, but they came up with it, and uh, we went ahead, and so then I had to uh, put out the rules of how we were going to do this, because a hand recount is very complicated. So it was, it was quite the extraordinary experience, and needless to say, a lot of, lot of pressure coming from every direction. Sure, and there was something along the way, I was reviewing it, and the Democrats wanted something called retabulation, but you ruled at some point that saying that's unconstitutional. What was retabulation in the manual recount? Well, what they, what they wanted me to do because they were behind was they wanted to get more ballots in the mix. So what they wanted me to do was to go back, have the counties go back, because actually the counties that do the counting uh, go back, and, and uh, revisit all the ballots for then to have them tabulated. I uh, see. Potentially. So those were, there were no signatures on the envelope. Those were, uh, they were late. Uh, they voted after the election, so they wouldn't count. And those were the signatures were, were bad, so it looked like the wrong person signed it. And by the way, what we do there is the counties immediately contact the voters before they certify the election and said, if your signature has changed, which people change their signatures, or sometimes it's health problems, uh, you need to uh, give us a new signature. But anyway, so that's what they wanted to do. And uh, it's understandable. That's the game that is played on recounts, is those behind what more ballots in the mix and uh, those who are ahead don't. Uh, well, my ruling was, and it's pretty obvious, was this is a recount. We're not going to go back and start all over again. And uh, uh, so they then challenged me legally. It went to court. It went to the state Supreme Court and uh, let them know, the state Supreme Court, we needed a ruling right away because we, we had to really get moving on this. And they did that kind of uncharacteristically, they moved and they uh, looked at the laws and all and, and ruled unanimously in my favor. Then what happened was the following week, the, the hand count had begun shifting and uh, it looked like Greg Ward was gonna pull ahead. So all of a sudden the Republicans were really glad, you know, happy with the previous decision. They sued me and uh, and essentially trying to do the same thing, get more ballots in the mix. So there I was, the Democrats were mad at me from the first case, now the Republicans are mad at me because Supreme Court ruled unanimously in my favor again.
And then, of course, this was all before King County ballots were discovered. That came into the mix in this whole thing, correct? During the hand recount, you are correct. Okay, and that must that was a whole new thing now, and mucking the whole uh, you know situation up. We had known that the weak link in our election system in the state of Washington was King County. Uh, they had the weakest system. They had the most inadequate staff, and the worst situation was they didn't have adequate space to do it. So they were cramped in one place, so they had to store their ballots in six different places in the courthouse. And uh, so what happened was to do the hand recount, they then had to go and fetch all those ballots. And uh, they found ballots they didn't know they had before, they, they noticed that they had set trays on, on ballots that were there. And in other words, it was really a fiasco, uh, but they had followed the rules. You certainly were a steady hand in a big storm and uh, deserve an incredible amount of credit for how you handled that. And because it really could have been even worse than it was. I mean, had uh, you know, you'd not settled everybody down. And the other thing that I come through this that I did, I guess I knew at the time, but Dino Rossi did not, I thought it was a typo when I was reviewing it, but did not concede the election until June 6th. That is correct, right. 2005, I guess he had to wait for the Chelan County ruling on that. But um, that was a you know, real interesting uh, fact that I had forgotten about. Right. They did not accept the election as having been legal and primarily because of what went on in King County. Needless to say, there were, the rumor mill had it that there were all kinds of illegal shenanigans going on and the perception, which really hurt, was that King County was kept finding ballots until uh, Chris Gregoire went ahead and, uh, you know, that it was just a crass case of, of uh, election fraud. Now, as we looked at it and as the King County prosecutor looked at it and such, uh, you know, we did not see fraud. We saw some real ineptitude and some serious, serious problems of how that election was managed and run. But we, we did not find fraud. That's former Secretary of State Sam Sumner-Reed, again, Secretary of State between 2001 and 2013. And one of the things he mentioned in the interview is that at some point in the process of doing the recount, he made the Democrats really angry and he made the Republicans really angry. Now that is being nonpartisan. All right, that's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. It's great to be back in Seattle. And I've been talking about self-employment for the last several weeks because this is something that a lot of people are considering. I'm reading more and more about this like an entrepreneur magazine as a result of what we're going through now. And I think I've said, Benny, before that really people should step back and make sure this is something that they really want to do. Correct. But what they can do is take the uh, Voices of Experience quiz. And that's on my website, which is voicesofexperience.com. It's about a five-minute quiz, and the higher you score on that quiz, the higher your prospects for success. And people who have taken the quiz have told me it's pretty accurate, 
Some people have decided to really jump into business after taking the quiz, and others have said, well, it's really not for me. And that's the goal of the quiz. And you can find out more advice about going into business for yourself on that webpage. And again, that's voicesofexperience.com. So that's it for today, and uh, we'll be back next week. 